We're continuing on in our, in our series, What God Makes New, and we've already talked about a couple of very key areas that are significant and that uh, I know that I'm thankful for, uh, that, that God makes new in my life. And we're focusing on what God makes new and what He makes true of every single believer. If you're in Christ, you are new, brand new. And there are so many things that that, uh, that implies and, and that covers. And so today, as we continue on in this series, we're going to be talking about, as you can probably uh, guess from that video, we're going to be talking about the fact that God gives us, He gives every believer, a new identity. A new identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we've looked at this throughout the series already. This is kind of our, our anchor passage, if you will, that uh, we keep coming back to. And it is one of the greatest promises in all the Bible. It's a great reality. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things, no matter what those are, no matter how big and bad and dark those are, the old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And this is, you know, this whole, uh, th- th- that passage, that verse, it's, it's all about the new and, and a new start, a fresh start, new things. And as fantastic as that in itself is, I want to make sure to emphasize that God doesn't just give us a new start. He gives us a new identity. He doesn't just give us a new start. He gives us a new identity. I'm sure uh, many, if not all of you, have at some point seen shows or movies, uh, police drama type things where a character goes into witness protection, right? And they have to be given a new identity. And they have to keep reminding themselves of that new identity because it's not natural to them. It's not familiar so they have to keep practicing with it and keep getting familiar and, and get to the point where their new identity takes over everything and it's just second nature and they can respond and act uh, under that new identity. Or there's the spy thrillers. I like spy thrillers. I like those kinds of things. And you know, there's uh, usually the secret agent or the spy and they have so many aliases that they have to operate from and so many fake identities that they have trouble uh, remembering who they really are. You know what I'm talking about? They, they have this, this trouble actually coming to grips with their real identity because they spend so much of their life operating from the fake identities with this mission or that mission and, and trying to be this person and assume that role you know, for, for the, uh, the mission that's before them. Both scenarios are often true for us as Christians. Both of those scenarios are, are often very true. We many times um, have trouble remembering who we really are as Christians in Christ, and we need reminded of that frequently. Uh, or we are so distracted by the various identities that we all have and that we all assume that we lose track of and and lose focus on our primary identity in Christ. Think about it. Your husbands 
or your wives, your children, your grandchildren. You are whatever your job is. You're, you know, you're a teacher, you're a supervisor, you're a financial advisor, you're whatever it is that you go to as your job where, let's face it, you spend most of your waking life doing. You know, you have, then you have your hobbies, things that you like to do and things that you are maybe an amateur at and you still though consider yourself that. Uh, you have all those interests. You have all these things in your life, none of which necessarily in themselves are bad. But you have all these things coming in that are vying for attention. And you have all these things that are, that are part of your, your focus in life. And if we are not careful, all those things that are true of us, if we're not careful, we can allow to define us. And we can allow the things that are okay and that are, that are good and proper to rise to an unhealthy and unintended by God level in our lives. See, what we are supposed to be defined by as Christians is one and one thing only. And that's new creations in Christ. And that is to drive all those other things. So, as I go to work, I'm a pastor, do you know that I'm not even supposed to be primarily defined by being a pastor? Who I am at the core of my being, my essence, should not be defined by what I'm doing up here behind this pulpit or all the other aspects of my ministry. Now, I have been called to be a pastor, and it's a high calling, it's a noble calling, it's a calling I'm, I don't deserve and I'm privileged to have, but if I let that define me, what happens to me if that calling changes or goes away? Then I, I crumble, right? If I'm building my life on the foundation of being a pastor, if that goes away, then the foundation goes away. If you, in your career or, or whatever it is, your job, your career, if you are basing everything you are, the core of your being, on that thing, on that job, on that profession, if that goes away, then your, your hope and your purpose goes away. So that's why you can't tie who you are exclusively to what you do or even to the relationships around you. If the only way you see yourself is as a mother or a father or, or whatever else you may be to someone else, then same thing applies. If that relationship goes away in, in some fashion, if all of your identity is tied to that label, that relationship, then you're in trouble. And so, we can't allow even the good things that God puts in our path and, and makes us or allows us to be or to do, we can't allow those things to become the main thing that defines or drives our life. We need to remind ourselves, it's very important to remind ourselves of our true and supreme identity in Christ, who we are in Christ, what He's made true of us, what we are and who we are in Christ because of Him, because of what He's done. 
And that's what we're going to do today. I would like you to look with me in God's Word at Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. Romans 8, 15 through 17. The Apostle Paul, writing, says this, For you have not received, you've not received, a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received, this is true of every believer, if you are in Christ, you've given Christ your life, He's the Lord and Savior of your life, this is true of you and every believer. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Adoption. As sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself, who is the Spirit of adoption, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, we don't like to talk about that part, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. We want the glory now without any of the suffering, but it goes together. We suffer with Christ, and the end result of, of our identifying with His suffering in this life is that we will ultimately be glorified with Him. Why? Because when you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit applies not just salvation. You're not just saved from going to hell. You're saved for something, believer. You're saved for adoption. Adoption into the very family of God. That should, that should just astound you. Uh, is anyone here adopted? Let me see your hand. You've, you've been adopted by someone. My hand's up. Brad's hand's up. There, there is something so um, fantastic for me personally, and I'm sure Brad can identify with this, whenever I read this passage. You know what I mean, Brad? It just does something big in my heart. Because, having been adopted by my parents, um, I, was, I was chosen by them. You know, I mean... Let's just let's face it, the, the rest of you out there, you didn't have any say in it. You know? I mean, you had a child and you got the child you had. <laughs> My parents that you know they couldn't have biological children, and there were a lot of different options. They chose me. I didn't deserve that. There was nothing I could bring uh, to the table that would make them want me you know I mean I was a helpless little baby I was three days old when my parents adopted me the only parents I've ever known Ed and Donna Chesley and knowing that I was adopted and and though I was not their biological child I was made their child and and uh, loved with all the fervor of any any parent that loves their child it just it has always impacted my life. And then when I understood what happens to us as a believer, what happens to us in Christ, that God Almighty in all of His holiness and all of His perfection takes us, the complete 
opposite of all He is. He is holy. We're not. He's perfect. We're imperfect. He's righteous. We're sinful. He is a servant. Though He is Almighty God, He is a servant. We are selfish. On and on it could go. He takes us. We talked about last week that we are spiritually dead before Christ makes us alive. He takes us and He doesn't just save us. He makes us His children. I mean, with all the, the rights and privileges that come with that, all the, the royal status of being a child of the King of the universe, it's yours in Christ. Not because, not because you deserve it, not because you're worthy, because He is gracious. You, are, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And if children... Also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. How is that possible? How did God accomplish this for us? How did He make this our identity if we are in Christ? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that. It gives us a, a clue. It gives us an answer for how did God do that. I mean, because there's a problem, right? There's, there's the holy God that I just talked about. There's unholy us. There's perfectly just God who hates sin and must judge sin. And there's us, the sinner. How in the world would it work for God in His perfect justice and holiness to make unholy, unrighteous sinners that deserve judgment and need sin dealt with, how does it work for Him to make them His children and adopt them? 2 Corinthians 5.21 he, God the Father, made Him, God the Son, Jesus, who knew no sin. Jesus is, is identical in nature, in character, in attributes, in heart and will in every other way to God the Father. So what God the Father is, is true of God the Son. How God the Father feels about sin, God the Son feels about sin. So He, the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, had no sin in His essence whatsoever, hated sin just as much as the Father, knew sin needed to be judged just as much as the Father needed to judge it. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Wow! God the Son equally holy and perfect and righteous with God the Father, became sin in the sight of the Father on our behalf so that the judgment for sin that had to happen, the judgment that had to fall on sinners, fell on Jesus who became sin for us instead of it falling on us. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, to stand in front of us and to take all of our sin on Himself and stand before the Father and receive all of that wrath and judgment that was due us. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that all that happened, so that we, the sinner, 
might become the righteousness of God in Him, in Jesus. This divine exchange happened, church. You see that, right? Here's us, the the sinner, fully, rightfully deserving of all of God's justice and judgment and wrath, not deserving His love, not deserving His favor, certainly not deserving to be adopted by Him. But here's Jesus. He comes and He stands in our place in front of us. And He takes all of our sin and He puts it on Himself. And in the Father's sight, He becomes sin itself. So that He can turn to us and take His righteousness and put it on us and put us in front of the Father. So that when the Father now sees us, He doesn't see our sin He doesn't see our unholiness. He sees the righteousness and holiness and perfection of His Son, Jesus God the Son. That's what took place. And that's what enables, then, God the Father not just to see us as righteous, but to then be able to adopt us as His very child. What does all this mean? That's that's the next question. Magnificent truth. Profound, powerful reality. What does all this mean for us? Well, it means, first of all, it means that Christianity is the only faith where God adopts the sinners that caused His Son's death. Think about that. Christianity, the Gospel, Christianity is the only faith, and the the truth of the Gospel is the only truth, where God adopts the very sinners that caused His Son's death. You you see this together with Romans 8.15 and 17 and 2 Corinthians 5.21, that that all who are in Christ receive this spirit of adoption. We're made God's child. We're made heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And the, the way that's possible is that God the Father took God the Son. He made Him sin and He judged it. And He poured all of that out on Him so that we could become the righteousness of God. That means that it was us, you and me, that caused Jesus to have to die. We, we are the ones that caused Jesus to have to go to the cross. He was willing to do it, but we are the ones that caused it to have to happen. It was our need that drove Him to the cross and His love for us and His desire to meet that need so that we could be adopted. No one else, no other, no other false deity in any other world religion would ever uh, be willing in that system of religion, whatever it may be, would ever be willing to do that. No other religion would, would dare uh, ever teach such a doctrine. No other person would ever be willing to do what God did. I mean, none of you would ever be willing to sacrifice your child for a criminal to be able to go free and have a good life. Christianity, that's one of many, many reasons that sets it apart 
and makes it so incredibly unique and beautiful is that God is willing to adopt the very sinners that caused His Son's death. And here's the other thing that uh, this, this means and, and that this implies. Another thing that is true because of what we just have looked at. Not only is Christianity the only faith where God does that, where He adopts the sinners that caused His Son's death, but it also means that no past, this is so important, no past, no matter how dark and horrible, no past is too bad for Jesus to change. No past is too bad for Jesus to change. Are you thankful for that today? Some of you can tell some stories about your past. Some of you can, can give examples from your past that would make people blush and be uncomfortable and be nervous. Some of you have such dark pasts that you can't even, you can barely stand to think about it yourself and, and it's hard for you even to talk about. Whether you've had a, a sordid past where you can look at, at your past and you look at your present in Christ and, and you're just astounded and blown away that you are where you are today, or whether you were saved at a very early age when the worst thing you did was lie to mommy and daddy or not pick up your toys, it doesn't matter because every person's past before coming to Christ is a, is a past that is a reality that is completely leading to a Christless eternity in hell. Every person's past before Christ is a past full of death, full of rebellion against God, full of not being able to help themselves, full of not being able to, to uh, be, be known by God as anything but a sinner. So every person's past is full of darkness and sin. And so when anyone comes to Christ, whether it's a child or a person later in their life, whenever a person comes to Christ and is transformed by Him, it is a miraculous thing. Every salvation is a resurrection story. And every salvation is a story of the miraculous. No past, no past is too bad for Jesus to change. These facts together, Christianity being the only faith where God adopts the sinners that caused His Son's death and no past being too bad for Jesus to change, you take these things together, these facts are why the Gospel is such good news. These facts are why the Gospel is what we need to spend our energy promoting and proclaiming and announcing and, and drawing everyone that we encounter to because there is no other power given among men whereby we must be saved. It's only in Jesus Christ and what He's made true of us. No other identity can give purpose and meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment like the identity that we receive through Jesus Christ. And here's more good news. You ready for some more good news? It doesn't stop there. As good as those things are, more, more good news for you is that we have, we have an, an, an enemy, right? We have an enemy. 
Our identity in Christ is real and it's powerful. Everybody look, listen, all right? Listen. We have an identity in Christ. It's real. It's transforming. It's magnificent. It's powerful. But we also have a very real active enemy. Right? You agree? And he's, he's powerful. He's strong. He means business. He needs to be taken seriously. He can do a lot. He can do a lot of damage spiritually, even to us as Christians. Even though we have this identity in Christ, our enemy, who hates that identity, by the way, he can do a lot of damage. He can cause us to doubt that identity. He can cause us to be distracted by that, uh, with that identity and be distracted by all those other things like I talked about at the beginning. All those other good things and other identities that we might have, He can cause us to cling to those instead of our identity in Christ. He can discourage us. He can depress us. He can allow us to choose uh, sin. We can, we can be tempted by Him and choose sin and get defeated again in our, in our own minds and our own hearts. Satan is a strong enemy. Make no mistake. But he's not strong enough to take away the identity our Savior secured for us. And that is really good news. Satan is a strong enemy for sure, but he will never ever be strong enough to take away the identity that our Savior secured for us by giving His life for us. What Jesus did on the cross secured not just our salvation, but our identity in Him and our adoption by His Father forever. And nothing Satan does, or nothing Satan tries, will take that away from us ever. Ever. With all of that being true, with all of those things being true, the next question is, what should we do about that? What should we do with all of, of that incredible truth? With that powerful encouragement and that reality? What should our response be as believers that that's true of? Well, for that, I want to draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll look at verses 17 through 24. This is what we should do about all that we just heard, all that we just read, all that you've now been reminded of is true for you. In light of our identity in Christ, in light of all that that means, Ephesians 4, 17-24, the Apostle Paul says this, Therefore this I say, therefore this I say, and testify in the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. In other words, don't walk, don't live, don't function, don't act as the unbelievers do. Don't act like the lost, because you're not lost anymore. That you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God. That's not true of you, believer. If you're in Christ, you're not alienated from God. You're adopted by God. So don't, don't live and walk and act as one who is alienated from the life of God. Why are they alienated from the life of God? Because, 
still in verse 18, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, you've been given a new heart. We looked at that at the very first message in this series. You've been given a a new heart and a new spirit. A heart that is moldable, malleable, led, driven, changed, shaped by the Spirit of God. So don't, don't live and act as one who has a hard heart. Verse 19, And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. It's a bad list. It's a bad list. Those are bad qualities, aren't they? That's true of every single person outside of Christ. Here comes another great contrast, though. You ready? Verse 20, But you, believer, you, made new in Christ, you with a brand new identity, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you heard Him and were taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, to lay aside. Verse 22, lay aside. Put off, cast off, in reference to your former conduct, the old man. The the person you were before Christ. The me you used to be before Christ. Get rid of it. Put it off. Put it off. Put it away. The old man. The the natural, fleshly man. Which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And to put on, so you're, you're laying aside the old man and all that goes with that. You're being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Everything everything starts in the mind, believer. Everything starts in the mind. From the mind goes everything else in our life. So you cast off the old man, all that goes with it. You're renewed in the spirit of your mind. Verse 24, and to put on the new man, the new you that Christ gave you, that Christ made you. To put on the new man which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This incredible passage, these verses here, uh, that is so vital to what we should do as ones who receive this new identity. How we should respond. How we should apply that new identity. And then, connected to that, Connected to that, Colossians 3, verses 2 and 3. Colossians 3, 2 and 3. We read this. Set your mind. See that connection? We were just told at the end of the Ephesians 4 passage there, uh, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Now, In Colossians here, Paul says, set your mind. You think it's important what we allow ourselves to think? What we we focus on? It absolutely is. Romans 12, 2. Be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The mind is so key. So here in this verse, in verse 2, Colossians 3, set your mind. That has to be intentional. That means it's not going to happen automatically. It doesn't just randomly happen it's something deliberate. We have to choose to, to set our mind. What do we set our mind on? On the things above. 
on that great reality, not on the things that are on earth. We choose. I'm going to focus on on this greater reality. As, As real as life here on earth is, as real as life in in this body is, as real as my job that I have to go to is, as real as, as having my family is, as real as living in the house I live in is, all those things are real. But if you are in Christ, there's a greater reality. And it's the reality of heaven that you are, are not in yet, and yet you are. Because we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's already a done deal. As far as God is concerned, we're already there. It's an absolute reality. It's fact. And so it's setting our mind on this greater overarching reality as we are still here in this reality. Set our mind on the things above, not on things that are on earth. In other words, our, our, whole, our whole focus needs to shift. Our perspective needs to be different. We live and we function and we go through life on this side of eternity, but we know that this is not it. And that we are already part of a greater reality. And we let that reality seep in, filter down into this reality and affect all all of this that we do. Everything we do here is in light of eternity. That's what it means. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Why? Verse 3 tells us why that's so important, why that should happen. Verse 3, for you died. You in your natural sense. The, the you you used to be before Christ. You died. That old person, it's dead. It's gone. And your life, the life that you, you still have, that you live, has been hidden, kept, Secure with Christ in God. Your life, your identity, has been hidden, kept secure with Christ in God. You see how that works? It's really what Galatians 2.20 is all about. When you come to Christ, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The life I now live, I'm, I'm still alive, still breathing. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That's what, it's really the same concept. I'm alive, but I'm not living the way I used to live before Christ. That person's dead. And the life that I still live physically in this body and in this, this reality and this, this side of eternity... I live in light of that eternity and I let all of that affect all that I do here and now. That's how it works. Knowing that my identity, it's not anchored to anything here. My identity is anchored to Christ and to the eternity that I'm already part of that awaits me when I close my eyes to this life. That's how it works. This is what's true of you, believer. If you're in Christ, this is what's true of you. This is your identity. Cling to it. Come back to it. Remember it. Believe it. And apply it. Oh, apply it. Apply it. By the Spirit of God in you, empowering that. The very Spirit that gave you that adoption, He's in you actively every single moment to empower living out this identity. 
Let's, let's take him up on all that he offers. Let's apply all of his power. We can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. Sound good? All right, let's pray together, and we'll, uh, we'll worship together one more time after I pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you have made true of every believer, everyone that comes to your Son recognizing their need for him, recognizing they are nothing without him. Everyone that gives their life to your Son, you give all of this to. You make, this, you make every single person that comes to you through your Son able to lay hold of these truths. This is our identity. Thank you. Help us to live in light of it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.